So, welcome everybody. This is, uh, I wish you were in a better uh, times for the, uh, you know, occasion of an online class, but it's still really nice to be learning with people uh, across the world. I'm now in uh, Jerusalem. I just found out that I'm in uh, quarantine, so it's really nice to uh, be in contact with other people. I'm okay. I just was in a, a building with someone at some point who had a, who had a corona. So, um, since uh, we are now in the uh, few weeks before uh, Pesach, I thought it would be nice to get our minds off the current situation and learn a little bit about uh, about uh, Pesach and the um, and some halachot that pertain uh, uh, to it. Particularly, I wanted to look at a few halachot regarding Pesach in which the role of a person's uh, kavana in uh, tension plays a role. So that is like the underlying theme of the halacha we're gonna look at um, this week and next. Um, and we're gonna look at it both halachically and also in terms of the, uh, what I'll call the intellectual history of how the halacha came to be specifically in the uh, Bavli. And so today, this afternoon for me, this morning for most of you, I guess, we're gonna look at the uh, idea of bitel uh, balev, the fact that you could mentally nullify hametz um, without having to actually physically get rid of it as well. And we're going to see that this seems to have been uh, bavli in uh, innovation mostly. Um, so we're going to start with halacha from Eretz Yisrael the Mishnah, and some works of Midrash Halacha as well. So the earliest uh, source, or one of the earliest uh, sources, which uh, talks about the ability, the ability to mentally negate chametz, is in the Mishnah in Pesachim. And oh, let me now share. Um, the screen with all of you, but I guess first what I should maybe make sure I always forget this kind of stuff. I should make an introduction. Hi, everyone. I'm Shana Strauchik. Um, I live in Jerusalem. I teach Gemara and Halakha here in uh, Israel and in uh, Drisha in New York. And I do research also at um, Yeshiva University as well. And it's nice to meet all of you virtually. <laughs> and if you have a question, just feel free to unmute yourself. Okay. So I'm, I'm going Another to... Another thing, if for any reason, sorry, Sean, I'm just going to interrupt. If, if, um, if you're having technical difficulties, roll over your mouse, there's a, there's a line of a toolbar at the bottom of your screen that will allow you to start a chat. So I'm going to be keeping tabs on that chat box. If you have a problem or there's any questions or something is, you know, you're wondering about something or you can't get Sean's attention first, any reason, just uh, feel free to check me in the in the box and I'll try to help with that again. Okay. Okay. So can everyone see this? Did I share the sources? Yep. Yep. We got it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to start with this and we know some, we have like an hour, but less than an hour at this point and time goes by so fast when you're learning really great rabbinic uh, sources. So we're going to start with Mishnah and Pesachim. Perik Gimel Mishnah Zion, which, uh, as I said, this is one of the earliest references 
um, of the ability to mentally negate chametz. So it says here, Halich lishchot et pischo. So I'm in source number one. Halich lishchot et pischo. Ulamo et beno. Ulachol sudat erisim bebet chachamav. So you are going to uh, slaughter your uh, Pesach, the carbon uh, uh, Pesach. So that means, you know, it's Erev uh, Pesach. Or you're on your way to circumcise your son. Or you are going to have a meal in the house of your in attended, uh, uh, meaning this is a person who's a man. We're all referring to men here. He has done the first part of marriage. A Jewish marriage is comprised of two parts, Kiddushin and Nisuin. Kiddushin is actually not, when one is married yet, that would be, you know, the word is betrothal. Um, so that was done a year before the Nisuin. And when they would just do the Kiddushin, they weren't uh, technically married yet. They kind of—it was like this half uh, date where, you know, he now can know her vows uh, for her. If he's a Kohen and she was a Israel, she would now be allowed to eat his uh, truma, partake of his uh, tithes. Um, but they can't live together yet. So it's this half and half uh, date. So if a man is going to do a kiddushin to you know a woman he's going to marry. And he's going to have the meal. And then, um, on the way, he suddenly remembers, This is all happening Erev uh, Pesach. And he remembers he has chametz in his possession. So what should he do? The meaning there is a tension here, because on the one hand, he has a mitzvah to do, you know, to, to circumcise his son, bring the carbon uh, Pesach, now, interesting to do the Kiddushin, it's actually a dispute amongst the Rishonim, amongst the medieval uh, rabbis, whether doing Kiddushin is even a mitzvah or not. I mean, is it a mitzvah to get married or not? Many, like the Rambam, say getting married is a mitzvah, and this Mishnah would be a good uh, proof of that. Some, like the, the Rush, Rabbeinu Hasher, he went, one of the last of the Tosafists, he said, actually, getting married is not a mitzvah. The mitzvah is pru'urubu, pru, you know, to have uh, uh, children to reproduce, and getting married is just a kosher way to do that. But he says it's not a mitzvah, and he'll have to, you know, explain this Mishnah accordingly. It's a nice thing to do, not necessarily I'm a, a mitzvah. We'll see how the Yerushalmi talks about this. But anyways, you have a, something like a mitzvah to do, and that kind of flicks with the fact that you have chametz in your possession, and you have to get rid of it. So what should you do? So says the Mishnah, im yachol lachzor er. If you have the time to go back to your house and destroy the chametz and you also have the time to also still do the mitzvah. I mean, there's time to both go home and get rid of the chametz and you'll, you'll still have time to circumcise your son. Then, go back and get rid of the chametz. But in love, but if there isn't a time, to go back and still do the mitzvah, mivatzlo belivo. You should just 
nullified in your heart. And of course, heart, you know, for the ancients was the seat of the intellect. So whenever it refers to, you know, a mind, it refers to a heart. So you mentally get rid of it. Um, if you don't have time to do uh, both. Um, let, let, now, that's about a mitzvah. Then the second part of the Mishnah says, now, if it's to save, uh, save a life, don't take a chance. Nachrim, if it's, you know, to save someone from uh, non-Jews, or from or to save someone from, you know, who's uh, drowning, to save someone from the thieves, Again, Yivatel Belibo. So if, if it's to save someone from a fire, from a falling wall, in that case, get rid of it uh, in your heart. Don't take a chance and try to, you know, uh, get rid of the chametz first. Levashot Shibitat Harshot Yachazor Miyad. But if it's to Shibitat, um, which is a Rishot, meaning to make an Erevan Shabbat, to allow you to uh, carry, since that's not a mitzvah, you don't have to do that. You can just not uh, carry, since that's a tavar rishut. That's an optional thing that you don't have to do. You should definitely go home and get rid of your chametz. So that's the Mishnah here. Um, and we see this Mishnah uh, talks about the possibility of mentally getting rid of chametz Erev uh, Pesach where you're not able to both perform a given mitzvah that has a set uh, time and get rid of it. So, um, so this Mishnah references this. Now, interestingly, in the parallel Tosefta, which I did not uh, bring to you, but in the Tosefta here, and the Tosefta is um, a parallel Tanaitic collection of halacha. It's from the same rabbis as the Mishnah. Um, but it's, you know, sometimes it, it has more than what's in the Mishnah, sometimes it has less. It's a dispute amongst scholars uh, uh, whether the Tosefta predates the Mishnah and was kind of like a rough uh, draft of the Mishnah, which the Mishnah then, you know, got it right and condensed, or if it came after the Mishnah and included stuff that the Mishnah uh, didn't. But either way, in the parallel Tosefta to this very same Mishnah, um, it makes no mention of being nevatel, of nullifying the chametz in your heart. It says, if you have time to get rid of the chametz and do the mitzvah, go home. And if you don't have time, you don't go home. And it uh, doesn't raise the possibility of being able to mentally get rid of the chametz. Um, however, the, the source that it likely uh, derived from uh, does mention it. That's the Mechopta Dribshinon Bar Yochai, a work of Midrash Halacha. So whether the Tosefta has this idea of mentally negating Hamid or not, you know, is kind of subject to this dispute. Now, this is really the sole mention of this idea of mentally getting rid of Hamid's in I'll just say kind of Eretz Israel, land of Israel, uh, rabbinic uh, text. Elsewhere, when we look through text from Eretz Israel, we see you have to physically get rid of of Hamid. Now, um, this uh, yeah derives from the pasuk in Shemot Yudbet Tevav. We have. 
the imperative to get rid of chametz. It says in source number three, For seven days we eat matzah, but on the but on the first uh, uh, day, you have to, what does this word mean, tashbitu? You have to uh, get rid of the leaven from your house. Um, and it seems like a, it's some sort of a physical act that you have to do. And that is in, a, in a, indeed how this uh, pasuk is understood in Tana, in Tana Itic law. So in the Mechelta de Rabbi Ishmael, which is a work of Midrash Halacha, which is, uh, again, it's, uh, it's from, it's the same rabbis as those that appear in the Mishnah, and it's basically uh, uh, taking the Pesukim from the Torah and deriving Halacha from the, pisuk, the Pesukim. So on this uh, Pasuk, Says Rabbi Yossi Omer, Tashbitu Sur Mi What is it? What does it mean when it says you have to get rid of the leaven from your house? Rabbi Yossi explained this as this harefa. You have to uh, uh, burn it. It's not enough to just get rid of it, but you have to physically destroy this chametz through fire. And in uh, this, in the, in the fifth source, when the Mishnah uh, talks about getting rid of uh, chametz. It lists it amongst those things which also have to be destroyed by fire. It says here in uh, Mishnah and Tamura, the Elohim Hasrafim. These are the things which have to be destroyed by fire. Chametz Bapesach Yisarech. So leaven, bread on uh, Pesach has to be uh, uh, burned. Um, okay. So this is really the overarching view of Eretz Israel law, that in order to uh, properly get rid of chametz, you have to physically destroy it. Mental nullification is raised as an option once in the Mishnah, but it's only where actually you have no other option. And since it's being done on Erev uh, Pesach, that might still leave open the option that you can later destroy it. I mean, that, that's, that doesn't mention it there, but it is a possibility. But again, it's only where you have no other option and where there are these other overriding mitzvot, which, um, which, uh, which are in conflict with it. And uh, when we look at the Yerushalmi's understanding of this Mishnah, we see that it really limits this idea of mental nullification raised in this Mishnah to these specific uh, cases. My kids are all home right now. Okay, so, sorry, going back to source number two. Of the Yerushalmi on this Mishnah, again, someone who's going to either slaughter their carbon Pesach, or to circumcise their son, or to you know have a seudat of kiddushin. And remember, they have chametz. And in the chametz betoch bechol beito. If you remember, you have chametz in the chol lachzor lebe'er lachzor mitzvato yachzor. If you have time to go back and get rid of it and perf perform the mitzvah, go back. Bimlad yibatablibo. But if you don't have time to get rid of it and do the mitzvah, just nullify it. 
nullified the chametz in your heart. So here the Yerushalmi says, Amar Rabbi Yossi be Rabbi Yahbon. So Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Yahbon, said, Bo ure'e ma gadol hu hashalom. Come and see, I mean, from this Mishnah, how great is making a peace. Why? Shehu kash l'shnei divarim shechavim alehem karet. Because it is... Uh, associated and it has a hekish it's connected which two with the two mitzvot that the punishment for violating them would be a karit what does that refer to milat bino ushchitat pischo what's the punishment if someone doesn't circumcise someone doesn't get a brit milah the punishment is a karit What's the punishment for a person who doesn't do the carbon uh, Pesach? They get uh, karit. One of the most severe uh, punishments in the Torah one could get. And so, says the Yerushalmi here, I understand why if doing the carbon Pesach and circumcising one's son is in conflict with uh, getting rid of uh, Hanates, those are two mitzvot, which the punishment for them would be uh, karit. And that's why we understand why better to do that than go back and physically get rid of the chametz. If someone doesn't do a, a, a brit, he'll get a, a, a karit. So that's why if the brit is in a conflict with getting rid of a chametz, do the brit and, and just do a mental nullification of the chametz. But doing a su'dat ki I mean, you could do that later. It's not something that uh, you have to do right now. But, says Rabbi Yossi here, that's how great it is to maintain a shalom. And here it seems to me, marital harmony, or maybe, you know, harmony with one's uh, future in-laws. So great is maintaining harmony within a household that that overrides the pasuk to get rid of chametz. Uh, so that's certainly a very nice message being imparted by the Yerushalmi. But we also see what it says about this, that the reason you don't go back and uh, physically get rid of your chametz in, these, uh, in this Mishnah is because of the weight of the two mitzvot that it's up against. The Karban Pesach and performing a Brit Milah you know, are very severe mitzvot for which the, uh, for which the punishment for them would be uh, curry. And that's why specifically in these two instances, you wouldn't go back and get rid of the chametz, but you would do a mental nullification. And of course, main, uh, maintaining a peace within one's household, that has huge weight as well. And that's what Rabbi Yossi is uh, coming to say. Maintaining a shalom in the household, that too has such a great weight. And that's why specifically in these instances, you would mentally nullify your chamed. But what that might seem to say is, otherwise you wouldn't. Otherwise you would have to go home and get rid of the chamed. In these, you know, major uh, areas of halacha, you go back, you don't go back and you mentally nullify your chametz. But otherwise, you know, mental nullification is not really a thing. That seems to be what the Yerushalmi is uh, 
uh, uh, going with, and it seems to limit the idea of, uh, of mental nullification. So that's Eretz Israel. As we're going to see now, not so the Babli. For the Babli, not only is uh, you know, mental nullification not limited to these uh, cases, but it attains the weight of Bior Chamed Midel Oraita. It becomes the Oraita way to get rid of one's Chamed. Uh, um, so we're now going to move on to the uh, Bavli uh, text. First, does anyone have a question of what we've done thus far? If you did, you can just unmute yourself. Okay. Um, okay. So now I'm going to look at the uh, Bavli. Now, um, it, 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 based on my uh, survey of it, um, and others as well, it looks like the uh, earliest reference in the Bavli to the uh, ability to mentally nullify one's uh, hamates is brought by a statement of the first uh, generation Babylonian Amara Rav, and you know, one of the most uh, prominent ones as well. He started out in Eretz Israel, the lands of Israel, and he went to uh, Babel. And uh, this is brought in towards the beginning of Masechet Pesachim, so source number six, so Rav Yehuda quotes Rav as saying, So when you check for chametz, make sure to also nullify it. Um, and later in this sugya, uh, a few lines down, the fourth uh, generation Babylon, Babylonian Amora Rava explains why should you also make sure to mentally nullify your chametz as well? He writes, Maybe you'll find, you know, uh, a good uh, piece of uh, chametz in your house and, you know, you'll want it. You'll think, oh, this is great and I'll want it. So just to make sure that doesn't happen, says Rob, make sure to mentally just nullify all the chametz in your possession as well. So for Rob, um, the physical uh, process of searching for and uh, getting rid of the chametz in your house should be accompanied by a mental nullification. The next time we see it, meaning the next time this idea to mentally nullify chametz appears uh, attributed to and named uh, sage, um, appears. Uh, Source number seven, in the name of Rav Chista. He's uh, amongst the elder of the fourth generation Babylonian um, Moras. Um, he's the preeminent uh, teacher in Azura until he uh, died in 309. So um, his uh, ruling appears on uh, the Mishnah brought in source number seven in Pesach and Laman Al-Bamid. Beth. And it writes, Hametz shenafla aleha ma'polet. So let's you have a wall, and the wall fell on top of your leavened uh, bread. So it says the Mishnah, Harei hu kimivu are. Since you can't get to the Hametz, that is adequate. That's as if you got rid of the Hametz. And Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel qualifies, Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel Omer, 
כל שאין הכלב יכול לחפש אחריו. אז long as a dog couldn't get uh, to it, the nesach hametz is considered as good as a gotten rid of. So if a wall fell on your hametz, you're good. You don't have to worry that you have hametz in your possession. And that, uh, that constitutes having been gotten rid of on uh, Pesach. Rev Hista here adds, Amar Rev Hista, v'tzarich sheyivatel bilibo. You should also mentally get rid of it. Um, so in this uh, case where you cannot uh, physically get to your chametz, you should also make sure to mentally nullify it as well. Okay, so... Some might say that Rav and Rav uh, Hista basically say the same thing, and they both are really uh, pioneering this idea that you have to mentally nullify your, your hamids. But I think there are two uh, differences between them, in which uh, Rav Hista's uh, mental nullification comes out of it uh, stronger than Rav's. I don't know if anyone wants to unmute and say what you think, but uh, anyone see a difference or can think of a, a, a difference or any uh, differences between Rav's and Rav Hista? Rav says, when you check for hamates, mentally nullify things as well. And the way Rav understands that is, even if you don't find anything, just kind of cover your uh, bases and do a, a good mental nulling of any chametz you might have. Whereas Rav Hista is saying, there's a piece of uh, chametz that a wall fell on. So you can't get to it. So you obviously, you know, you don't have to get rid of it, but mentally nullify it. So do you see any, any difference between Rav and Rav Hista? Do you want to like, put this out to anyone? I don't know. I don't know how good of a, a caterer I should be on a Zoom uh, class, but can you un can you unmute yourself? So um, how does this work? Yes, um, everyone can. can unmute themselves. So if you have they any, can, uh, a quick reference for people for participants. If you'd like to unmute yourself quickly, uh, you can just press the space bar button on the mm -hmm. keyboard. And or just roll over the bottom of your screen, and there's another option at the bottom left, like right down there, um, that says mute or unmute. Okay. Anyone want to share a, a thought? I mean, I obviously have thoughts about this. I'm happy to share them, but okay. So I'll share my thoughts. <laughs> so one is uh, Rob's uh, Beto Pelev is being accompanied by. A physical act of searching and uh, getting rid of one's uh, chametz. So it's not enough to just mentally nullify. You're looking through your house, you're, you know, your kid put out their uh, crumbs or their uh, crackers, and when you look uh, through it, say a nice, you know, batel chametz just to cover your. Uh, uh, basis, whereas Rav Hista's is not accompanied by any physical act. You're not able to get to that uh, hummus. So that's one uh, difference. 
The second uh, difference is Rob's uh, mental nullification is only applying to theoretical hamates you might have, but you don't know that you have. Where Rav Hiz does, on the other hand, there's an actual piece of uh, bread you know is there and you're not able to get to. And yet he's saying you can mentally nullify it, even though it's there and you know it exists. So for those reasons, I see Rav Hiz does as being a little more uh, uh, powerful maybe than Rob's. And I say this also because this idea that the mental um, has a place in halacha uh, correlates with other halachot of Rebbe Chistas that appears elsewhere in Shas as well. So for example, in the Sechet of Odazara Chaf Zayin Ahmed Aleph, 27a, Rebbe Chista, he introduces the fact that one needs a specific uh, kabana, a specific in a tent when uh, performing a brit milah. It's funny that, you know, if you just mentioned brit milah, a circumcision. But before, earlier Tana, um, earlier Tana Itikla said, you just uh, couldn't have the wrong uh, kabana. And that's why in the Mishnah, it invalidates a non-Jew or a Samaritan from performing a Brit Milah um, because they they because they they might have the wrong uh, the wrong uh, uh, kavana, but they said nothing about requiring a positive uh, kavana. Rav Hista introduces the need for a specific in a in a tent when performing a brit milah that it must be done le hashem you know for the purpose of doing the mitzvah a brit milah rev hista also introduces the fact in the sechet shoka dachet amar abet 8b that shechach when you put the uh, you know the roof over on your on your shoka you must have the kavana the intention that, that it provides shade. And that's uh, something that was not found in earlier Tana, Tana Itik law. So we see that Rebbe Hista introduces in a need for specific uh, Kavana in a variety of mitzvot. And this uh, hits that as well, that he uh, gives a new emphasis to the role of one's mind when performing mitzvot. And so the fact that he would uh, attribute a greater weight to mental nullification of hamitz uh, hits with other halachot of his as well. So we see that Rab and Rav Hista kind of re-emphasize this, the power of mental nullification of hamitz. And this is uh, followed through in other sigyots in the, in the Bavli as well. And the rest of them appear without attribution anonymously, which usually attests to the fact that they are later. So, um, in a Pesachim Tet Amud Bet, we're moving on now, where we'll see 
The ability to mentally nullify hametz uh, plays a role in others' hagiot. So in uh, source number nine, you have shnei tziburim. You have two uh, piles. Achad shel matzah, v'achad shel hametz. One pile has matzah, one is a hametz. V'lefneim shnei batim. And in front of them are two houses. One you uh, checked, one you did, one you did not check. Then two little mice came along. And one of these little mice is uh, taking matzah from the matzah pile. And the other little mouse is uh, taking hametz from the hametz pile. And you don't know, sorry, where did the mouse go with the matzah? Where did the mouse go with the hametz? What do you do? Says the Mishnah, This is like the case of two uh, kufot, two uh, baskets of uh, truma. The tanam for its taught. Shnei kufot. So you have two uh, receptacles. One has hulin, that's just regular, non-sanctified food, meaning the food we all eat, the food that you don't have to be in a state of uh, purity to eat. And you have another receptacle of food which is uh, uh, tithes, meaning it's uh, truma, given to the priest, that one would have to be in a state of uh, purity to eat. And you have two, uh, in uh, front of it, you have two uh, measurements of food. And again, one has chulin, one has uh, elu, And they fell into those receptacles. Meaning, so you have, you know, a receptacle of a truma, one of a hulin, and you have a thing of truma and a thing of a hulin, and they fell into them. So can you assume that the truma fell into the truma and the hulin fell into the hulin, or should you assume the worst? So the, the Mishnah says, mutarin, the truma is fine. You can assume that the truma fell into the, the truma. So, the Gemara is saying, just like you can assume the truma fell into the uh, truma, can't you assume back in our case that the little house carrying the hametz ran into the house that was already clean for Pesach, whereas the mouse carrying the hametz ran into the house that was not, you know, uh, clean for Pesach. So can we make a parallel from the truma case to the hametz case? Says Agmara, no, you, you can't. Why? Shani. Oh, sorry. Shani Omer. Oh, so, so sorry. I didn't uh, finish this. Shani Omer. Chula letoch. Chula naflu. Truma letoch. Truma nafla. So in the case of the truma, you assume that the chulin fell into the chulin and the truma fell into the truma. So can we make the parallel? Says the Agmara, no, you can't make the parallel. Why? Eimer de Amrina. Shani Omer. The truma de Rabbanan. So, if 
that case of, uh, of uh, truma, we can only assume truma fell into truma, where it's a case of only truma on a rabbinic uh, level. But here, chametz de horaita, the prohibition of chametz on a Pesach, that is a biblical law. So me, Arena, um, so what do we say? That meaning we can assume that the truma fell into the truma because it's only on a rabbinic level. But we couldn't make the same assumption about uh, chametz because that is de oraita. If we're wrong, and the mouse carrying the, the chametz went into the house that was already clean for uh, Pesach, one would be over an iser de oraita. They would be uh, violating a biblical prohibition against possessing uh, chametz. So we can't make that uh, uh, assumption. We have to assume that the mouse brought the chametz into the house. Then ask the Kemara, wait a minute. Atu bedika chametz de oraita is uh, checking your house for chametz in the Torah. De rabbananhi. That's only a rabbinic law. Why? De mida oraita bebitol bealma sagele. Mida oraita in the Torah would be adequate to just mentally nullify your chametz. Minatori, you could just mentally get rid of it. It's only the Rabbanan who instituted that we have to get rid of uh, Hametz. Um, and that's the Shogya here. So we see that uh, what's raised as a possibility in the Mishnah for when you can't uh, fulfill a, a biblical law with a very severe uh, punishment is raised as a possibility with the, which the Yerushalmi limits to that very specific uh, case. Here in the Bible is brought as the uh, biblical um, mitzvah of getting rid of your chametz. You don't actually have to get rid of chametz. It is adequate to just mentally nullify it. And it's the rabbis who uh, came along and said you have to physically get rid of it as well. Now, um, and this appears in, a, in other sugyot. Now, the fact of about this his uh, because um, you know if you recall going back up to source number four says what do we learn from the word tashbitu so or mibatechem and that's again in shemuk parakud bet the fact you have to get rid of the leaven from your house rabbi omer bisarefa from there we learn you have to physically destroy your chametz by fire. And now in the, in the Bavli here, it says uh, getting rid of your chametz physically, that's only a rabbinic uh, decree, but really you can just mentally null it and that's adequate. So this uh, Bavli uh, directly contradicts Tanaitic law. And this was not lost on the Rishonim. The medieval uh, commentators uh, struggled with how to reconcile this shogya, uh, which uh, deems mental nullification as the de oraita, as the a biblical law of getting rid of a of a hametz, where elsewhere we see 
you have to physically get rid of it as well. So I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be nice if we look in the uh, Tosfos here. Um, uh, Tosfos, the group of rabbis who live in the uh, 11th uh, century, many of them are the grandsons of Rashi. And often, you know, this, this is the uh, program of the Tosafists to reconcile contradictions between a sugyot, um, and that is what they do as well here in our uh, case. So here, and this goes back, uh, this is a different uh, sugya. Um, on Bet Amir Aleph, it says, the first Mishnah says, or la'aba asar botkin et It's in source number 10, so the Mishnah says, the night of the four teeth, uh, you check for chametz, uh, uh, and there's a lot of discussion as to why it refers to night here as or, which means light. But anyways, here, uh, so the uh, Tosfos writes, Perish ha kuntris. So that stands for Rashi. Rashi explains here, why do you have to check for chametz? Shalo la'avor ala be'abal yere'eh. So that you don't uh, uh, violate the biblical commandment of you are not allowed to see or find chametz during uh, Pesach. And this was a problem for Ri, which stands for Reb Yitzchak Midan Pierre, one of the Tosafists. And he says, This is a problem. What's the problem? Since we have to mentify it, as, as we know, as we learned, it says in Kedamar Big that was Rav's. You know, since Rav says one's, one who checks for Chametz has to mentally nullify it as well. And what else do we know? Umid Oraita and we know that mean HaTorah, because we know this from Ted Amabet, it is adequate to mentally nullify the Chametz. So therefore, since all you have to do is mentally nullify the Chametz, am I hitrichu chachamim dedika klal? Why the first Mishnah of Pesachim? Why did the Chachamim obligate, obligate us to search for Hametz when Mita Oraita, the Bab we said, it's adequate, or what you have to do is uh, just mentally nullify the Hametz? Why do we have to search and get rid of our Hametz? In other words, how do we reconcile mission, mission A law? Which, which obligates us to search for and get rid of chametz uh, with uh, a bomblee, which says, need to write it, you just have to mentally nullify it. So that's the question. And uh, Tosfos gives an answer, Venera Liri. So the re answers, De Afalgav, De Sagi, Alma, even though, yes, it is enough to just mentally get rid of your chametz. So basically, this is just a uh, humra. The rabbis were extra machmir. They were strict to get rid of it as well, to search for your chametz and get rid of it. Why? So you don't come to eat it. So yes, in Hachinami says the re, 
you really don't have to get rid of your chametz, but it's just a way to make sure you don't eat it. You could just mentally nullify your chametz. That's all the Torah really wants us to do, but the rabbis made a fence. Get rid of it as well so that you won't come to eat it. Um, so meaning, yeah, the mental nullification of the chametz of the babli, that is the law. Um, and then it brings the proof uh, from this. This is the line of Rava, of Rava I referred to before. Rava who explained Rav's halacha to not only search for chametz to mentally nullify it as well. This is also the, this is in the ply what it says later. Debai Rava he says you have to search, you know, what the you have to search your walls because you might, you know, it might come in, you might have to search your healings because uh my mates might fall and you might come to eat it. And why are we so machmir with uh Hamids? The Hatam Khan. So why were Hachamim Machmir? Why were they strict if it's enough to just mentally get rid of your Hametz? So it says, Hatam Shechmiru Khan Bishar Hana'a. Why were they extra strict here, you know, stricter than they are with other prohibitions? Shelo Other things we don't have to get rid of. So the reason is, Mishum Dechametz Mutar Kol Hashana. Belonesa Rakbab. Since we we eat uh, hametz all year all year round, and we're used to eating it, so that's why it's much more uh, prevalent. It's much more of a concern that you might see it and you might eat it. You know, whereas you know uh, uh, something else, which is hasser all of the time, is always prohibited. We are used to you know not partaking uh, of it, and therefore there's no need to get rid of it as well. But chametz, uh, since we eat it all year round, and it's just this one week where it's not allowed, chachamim made this extra stringency to have to get rid of it so that you don't come to mistakenly uh, eat it. And that's why he says, you know, and therefore he says, skipping uh, a little bit below, damele abasar bechalav noheg So it's not uh, similar to the prohibition to eat meat and, meat and milk. We can never eat meat and milk. There's never a concern we'll forget and eat it. And uh, also we are never allowed to eat Arla. You know, that is a uh, food uh, produce the first few years before you uh, bring it to the Beit HaMik uh, Adash or mixed, uh, mixed uh, species. All these things are always husser. So we don't need an extra stringency to get rid of them as well. But uh, chametz is always permissible, and just this one week we're not allowed to eat it. So therefore, the chachamim gave us this extra stringency to get rid of it as well. But uh, Tosfos gives an alternative reason why we have to get rid of it if mental nullification is adequate. Inami. Or alternatively, Shani Bo Torah. Even why is why do we have to get rid of it? Because even the Torah is extra strict on Hametz. Why? La Avor Bebal Yera Ubal Yematse. 
it says in the Torah, you are not even allowed to see it. So since the Torah was already more machmir, therefore, and that's why, again, the Chachamim were extra strict with it and required us to get rid of it. But um, really, Mina Torah, mental nullification would be adequate. That's all we have to do. Tosfos and Pesachim gives a different uh, way to recognize Hyalid, and he says how, and they explain how um, this works. And again, just skipping a little bit, we here asked the same uh, question on Dalad Amabet. Why did Chachamim make us get rid of it if mental nullification is okay? And again, just skipping to the third line, last two words, Omeri. Again, according to the Torah, it would be adequate to just mentally nullify your chametz. And why is that? So now Tosfos uh, gives the legal mechanism for how this works. Once you nullify your chametz, it becomes hefker, becomes ownerless. And therefore, yatsa mir shuto. It leaves your reshut. You no longer own it. Umutar. And now it is permissible if it's there. Um, so uh, Tosfos explains that it works through the legal mechanism of hefager. It becomes ownerless. Now Ramaban Nachmanides takes issue with this. And he writes, you know, how could you say it becomes Hefger? If it became Hefger, why wouldn't uh, Bavli have uh, said this? And it never mentions anything about Hefger, about it becoming ownerless. And Ramban uh, very uh, strongly argues with this uh, uh, Tosfos and says, there is no way that mentally nullifying your chametz uh, makes it Hefger. And... Uh, Rather, he explains, and I left out uh, uh, a lot of it, but I'll just tell you how, we'll just read the end where he explains how it works. He writes, This is what I say, says Ram Aban. Mentally, nullifying your hamates does not make it ownerless as the Tosefis say. Rather, says the Ram Aban, when you mentally nullify your uh, hamates, you make it not uh, hamates. You're making it like the dust of the earth that's now long, no longer edible. It's no longer considered a food. And that is why we mentally nullify it, says Ram uh, Haban. Um, and, uh, and skipping a little bit, he says, Kevan shelo hikbida Torah, ela shelo yehei chamet shelo birshuto. And uh, this works because the uh, Torah just uh, doesn't want it to be yours. It, it uh, doesn't want it to be uh, something that you own. Um, and if you make it into the uh, uh, 
dust of the earth, something that's not worthy to be eaten. It's no longer yours. It's it's nothing. And uh, and uh, that's why you know this din of mental nullification can work. And um, and um, we'll we'll leave this at there. Other rishonim try to defend the the tosivus and say why making it hefker uh, does work and why that can be a, a, a valid outcome of the mental nullification. Um, however, way this idea is understood. What we see is that the uh, uh, Bavli gives a really new life to this idea that you don't have to uh, physically get rid of your chametz, but it is enough to just mentally nullify it. And in the three minutes left um, that we have left, I will say that this actually fits with the uh, uh, broader kind of conceptualization of the, the Bavli, wherein in a tensionality and the role of one's mind plays a far more significant role than it uh, plays in uh, law from Eretz Yisrael from the same uh, time. Um, as I already said before, Rav Chista elsewhere says that one's mind plays a role in a mitzvot. So hachach uh, is only a kosher if you had the kavana to use it for shade. A brit milah, he says, is only a kosher if you had the uh, proper kavana when performing the circumcision. And elsewhere in a variety of halachot, one's kavana plays a significant role. So this is just one example where uh, Kavana plays a great role in the uh, Bavli and really uh, correlates with the large halacha of the uh, Bavli in the realm of areas as well. And we see that this is the tra uh, trajectory that the Riyah Shonim went in as well. And ultimately this also became the codified halacha so if we go to our, our final source, uh, skipping a few hundred years, this is how the Shulchan Aruch rules. Rav Yosef uh, Cairo writes in Laws of Pesach, Achar habdedika miyad balayla yevatlenu. As soon as you uh, check your house at night, you know, the night of Erev uh, Pesach, you searched your house, you got rid of any chametz uh, that you found, you also have to mentally nullify it, be your mayor, and say, this should all sound familiar to us, kol chamir de any chamir that's in my possession, de lo which I did not see, de lo which I did not get rid of, libatel, let it be nulled, v'lehave ka'afra de'ara, like we saw this concept that Nachmanides brought, it has to be like the uh, dust of the earth. Haga and the Rama adds in here the Omer Make sure you say it in the language that you understand. So if 
Aramaic is not your first language. Make sure to say it in your language as well. And in fact, this is what we all do. First we say it in Aramaic, then we say it in Hebrew. And if you're an English speaker, which presumably everyone here is, we then say it in English as well. Remember, um, and if you say it in Lashon HaKodesh and in Hebrew, um, that includes Chamitz uh, and Seor, that includes all leavens. But if you say it in any other language other than Hebrew, then you have to actually list everything. I mean, so if you're, you're saying in Hebrew, it's enough to just say, but if you're saying in other languages, you have to list all the things you're getting rid of as well. Now getting back to the Shulchan Aruch, you should go back and do your mental nullification again during the day. Um, you know, when you, at, at the end of the fifth hour, before we get to the sixth hour, because once it's the sixth hour, that's already hustler. You are not allowed to uh, own chametz uh, anymore. And then, and then, since you're not allowed to own it, you won't be able to lull it anymore. So do a mental lulling once at night. Do it again during the day uh, before the beginning of the sixth hour. And again, there are my ads. And you should only mentally nullify it during the day after you have already destroyed the chametz. In order to fulfill that other mitzvah we saw of uh, physically destroying the chametz by a fire of your own uh, chametz. So, uh, in this way, the Ramah is uh, bringing both uh, opinions, both that of Eretz Yisrael. You do have to uh, physically destroy your uh, chametz, and it should be your uh, chametz. And we still, and we have the lacha of the uh, babli as well, and also mentally nullify it. And as we all know, this is how the Allah is uh, practiced uh, today. So that is how we went from the need to uh, physically destroy mates that we find in the uh, Torah, as understood in the early Eretz Israel law and in the Eretz Israel law as well, to the uh, Babli law, to the new significance uh, afforded to mental nullification. Occasion uh, to what we do uh, today of a mixture of the two, both the physical destroying of the chametz, uh, along with the significance uh, given to our mental capabilities to mentally null our chametz. Um, so, if you have any uh, questions, feel free to say it now. You can. Email yes, me. I have a question. I have a question. Hello. Let me. Uh, I'm gonna. Stop the sharing. Yes, I would like to know if uh, there is some hypothesis where possibly um, the Bavli tradition underscore inter 
intentionality more than the Yerushalmi tradition. Yeah. So sorry, what's your uh, question? Did you hear my question? Can you read? Yeah, yeah, sure. I would like to know if uh, scholars or rabbis have uh, uh, raised a hypothesis where uh, explaining why uh, intentionality would be more underscored in the Bavli tradition as opposed to the Yerushalmi tradition? Um, that's a great uh, question. If I can uh, plug myself here, it's a subject to my upcoming uh, book. But uh, people have written about this as well um, in uh, uh, you know, a smaller uh, scale. But, um, and that is the Bavli, uh, uh, and this is just everyone ag agrees on this, has a much more, for lack of a better word, sophisticated and developed conceptualization than what appears in the Yerushalmi. Now that's for many reasons. The Yerushalmi ends a lot earlier than the Bavli. Uh, and a lot of the very sophisticated conceptualization you find in the uh, Bavli appears in the generations which is already at the end of the Yerushalmi, when the Yerushalmi was already uh, closing, meaning most of the conceptualization which really defines the uh, Bavli is found in the beginning with the fourth uh, generation, uh, Babylonian, Amora, Im, Rava, and uh, Baye. And it continues after them and really reaching it the uh, pinnacle in the uh, stam, the sugyas, uh, the unattributed uh, portions of the uh, Bavli, which really date from a time after the Yerushalmi. And in intentionality, it's just one example of a sophisticated mode of conceptualization. That's not to say that the that the the Ishna Eretz Israel doesn't know of intentionality. The Ishna talks a lot about a person's uh, kavana, a person's intention. Um, it comes up in the realms of uh, Toma and uh, Tahara. Anyone who's doing a uh, Dafiomi just came across the idea that. Your uh, vessel can only become impure uh, if you wanted the uh, vessel to uh, uh, to uh, what's the word I'm thinking of to hold water that uh, drops into it. So the Mishnah does uh, talk about a person's uh, kabana, but the uh, Bavli uh, talks about it in a much more sophisticated uh, uh, way in a much more unit. Uh, versal way, meaning many people have written about this Ishai Rosenash to be uh, writes about or that the uh, Kavana of the Ishna is a very uh, uh, black and white one. I thought this, you know, I, I mean, one thinks this, meaning you think a certain act and it's not about you, it's about one has to think I have the uh, Kavana that my uh, bull will. Uh, absorb water. But it's not about what your uh, personal sub 
subjective and uh, tensionality is. So that's just a hallmark of the larger conceptualization of the uh, goblet. And as you know, there might be some other uh, factors as well, but that's just a basic answer, that this just reflects the larger sophisticated conceptualization that really is the hallmark of the uh, Bobbly. So sorry for a long answer. Thank you. So much more to it than that. But uh, Kavana is just one example of this. Good. And it's the subject of my book, so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Doctor. Yeah. Now, thank you for your uh, uh, question. It's a great uh, question. Yes. Amazing. That's very good. Thank you. And anyone else? If you don't have now, you feel free to say thank you. Great oh, cheer. Thank you so much. Great cheer. Thank you. Thank you so much. When can we have the source sheet of your class? Where can we uh, have the soft sheet of your class? I will email it to the class. Um, Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you all so much. Um, yeah, so nice to take our minds off the world right now <laughs> and uh, learn uh, uh, a little bit. So uh, thank you all so much. And again, I'm happy, you know, I welcome any uh, questions you might have. Feel free to email me. Um, and yeah, and I'll see you next week. Um, in, the email, in the email I send, I will copy uh, Dr. Uh, Strachik so that you will be able to have her email address as well. Okay? Great. Thank you all so much. Welcome back. Good to see you all again. Um, so last week, feels like so long ago, I feel like every day now feels like a year. But if you can think back to last week, we saw how the uh, Bobli amplified the role of one's mind of, in the law of Vito uh, Balev, in the ability to mentally nullify chametz before chametz, before uh, Pesach, where we saw the Yerushalmi did the opposite. The Yerushalmi and Eretz law uh, generally obligate one to uh, uh, physically get rid of their chametz and only in really extenuating circumstances did they allow for the possibility to mentally nullify one's uh, habits with the uh, Bavli, in particular the ruling of the fourth generation Amora Reva Hista really brought new life into this ability. So this week we're going to see the opposite occur that uh, where the Mishnah or where Eretz Yisrael law requires one to have a mental, a mental role in their performance of a mitzvah, in them being the obligation to do mitzvot or specific mitzvah with uh, kavanah, with the requisite in attention. Uh, the Ababli does the opposite, says that in attention uh, is not necessary. So we're going to see that in one specific opinion that appears throughout the uh, Babli, and then we'll see how that ramified in Halakha, I mean, how these two, um, these two different uh, opinions on the matter, how that really became what seems to be a raging machloket during the medieval uh, times and into the law of the Shulchan Aruch. So there's a lot of, uh, of uh, sources 
and very ambitious about what we can go through in this time, but it really, um, if we can put it all together and see it all, I think it would be really nice to see it in one time. So let's do this. Um, so the Mishnah, in uh, generally the way it is come uh, posed, it doesn't state uh, general rules. Like it will never come out and say there's a thing called a Shabbos and this is what you do. You have to keep a kosher. It uh, doesn't talk about rules. It speaks of things in specific uh, cases. And so throughout the Shishas Hadre Mishnah, we found uh, we find uh, scattered references to specific mitzvot, specific commandments, uh, and that in uh, in uh, intentionality is required in the performance of them. So, in regard to reciting Shema, the mitzvah, in, uh, the mission in uh, Brachot, Parak Bet Mishnah Al State had Kore Torah source number one. If one is one happens to be reading through the Torah, and they're reading the section of the Torah, which has the Shema. They're, they happen to read that uh, Pasuk. And at that very moment, it happens to be the time of day that you're obligated to recite uh, Kriyat Shema. If you direct your heart, um, you fulfill your obligation to recite Shema. love if you do not direct your heart, lo you do not fulfill your obligation. So while there's a lot to say about this, when you're reading it, it really does seem like the shot meaning is if you direct your heart to fulfill the mitzvah. That's, that seems to, what, to be what it's about. And we see a, a similar formulation appear with regard to a different mitzvah, that of blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. So it says in Masechah Rosh Hashanah, Paragimel Mishnah Zayin, Mishavir Achar Beit HaKenazet. Someone has to be walking behind a shul. Oh, Shaya Beit HaSamoch Beit HaKenazet. Or their house is near a shul. Veshama Kol Shofar Okon Negila. And they hear the shofar being blown on Rosh Hashanah. Or on Chag Purim, they hear the Megillah being read, Megillat Esfater. And again, we find the same thing. If you direct your heart, and again, it seems to mean you direct your heart to, to, to fulfill the mitzvah, yetzah, then you fulfill the mitzvah. Meaning, if you're walking past the shul, it's Rosh Hashanah, and it happens to be the same moment that they're blowing the shofar if you you know, if you direct your heart and say, I want to fulfill my mitzvah of a shofar Rosh Hashanah, then you fulfill the mitzvah in love. If you did not direct your heart, lo yatzah, you do not fulfill the mitzvah. And the mission makes it even uh, uh, clearer what they require of you. Even though two uh, people can both be uh, doing the same act of hearing the shofar or the, or the megillah, it all matters, did you have kavanah? What was your intent uh, when you did the act of hearing? If, so two uh, people can do the same act, but one has uh, kavanah, one does not. The one who has kavanah fulfills the mitzvah, the one who does not have kavanah does not fulfill the mitzvah. And we find this reiterated in Masechet Megillah, the Masechet, the tractate which uh, deals with 
Kern says again about Megillah Hayakotva, if someone's a scribe in their writing, Megillat Esther, or Dorsha, or they're expounding the, the verses of Megillat Esther, Um Megiha, or they're correcting it, you know, they're checking the text for mistakes, Im Kivein Libo Vimla Boyasa, and again, it happens to coincide with the holiday of uh, Purim. Again, if you intend your heart to do the mitzvah, you fulfill it. If not, you do not fulfill the mitzvah. And this really is the general thrust of the Eretz Yisrael text on the matter. Now again, the Mishnah doesn't speak in uh, generality. So it doesn't come out and say, mitzvot require kavanah when you perform them to fulfill your obligation. So this might just be the case for these specific mitzvot. Only these three require uh, kavanah, whereas maybe other mitzvot do not. Or you could say this is the uh, general rule for all mitzvot. And the mission just speaks since, you know, case specifics, but one can extract that to all mitzvot. So, you know, it's unclear from the Mishnah itself. We'll see what the uh, Bavli uh, does with it. So, um, going on to next source. So, in, in the Sefer Rosh Hashanah, in the uh, Bavli, on um, this uh, Mishnah number uh, two, someone's walking behind a shul or lives next to a shul. This mission means a lot to me because I, I happen to live right across the street from a shul and I can hear the shul from, uh, from my apartment. So that worked out well when I had a baby. Go. But the mission here says, I mean, the, in, on this Mishnah, the Bavli um, writes the following. So they sent to the father of Shmuel. Shmuel is... Um, a first uh, generation, a Babylonian Amora, one of the most, he's a, kind of the preeminent, one of the first of the uh, Babylonian rabbis. And his, uh, his uh, father is really from the earliest uh, generation that we know anything about. I mean, so much of the Babli Jewry from the uh, biblical time until the uh, Babli is really uh, shrouded in this century. So when we hear a little reference to Abu Adish Muel, Shmuel's father, this is pre-Amorayim. So it's an earlier time than what we, you know, from, than what we know about. Anyways, they uh, sent him the following rule. Kafu or kifao v'achal matzah. If someone is uh, forced to eat matzah and Obviously, it's on uh, Pesach. What's the law? Now, why would someone be a uh, forced to eat matzah? So, oh, look at that. Okay, so some explain the uh, a non-Jew uh, forces a piece of matzah into your mouth. So they rule here, Shmuel rules, Yatza, you fulfill your mitzvah of matzah on uh, Pesach. Now from here, Rava, the fourth generation Amora, who happened to be the student of Rava Chista, as well as his son-in-law, he makes the following inference. Zot Omeret, this says, I mean, this ruling of Shmuel, of Shmuel's father indicates, 
Hatokeya Lashir. If one blows the shofar on Rosh Hashanah to make music, or Rashi actually has a different uh, version which says Hatokeya Lashid, you're blowing the shofar to ward off a demon. Anyways, you're uh, blowing the shofar for a reason other than fulfilling the mitzvah. So Rabbi says, based on this ruling of Shmuel's father, we can that Tantokeel, if she or someone blows the shofar not to do the mitzvah, you fulfill your chiyah, you fulfill your mitzvah of blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Now, what is this uh, obvious inference? What could you say? Do you have to say that the fact that you, if you're forced to eat matzah, you fulfill your uh, chiv? Do you have to say that that could be expanded to all mitzvot, that you never require a kavanah, even in an unrelated area like like shofar? Or could you say that is specific to matzah? That's specific to the case of where you eat. Why could that be a uh, different at a mute book? You could say that maybe when you eat, the experience of eating is inherently uh, different than other mitzvot you perform. Because when you eat it, you get uh, pleasure, you enjoy it. That's a, and that uh, physical uh, patience you get uh, from it. Maybe that's awareness that is uh, tantamount, tantamount to uh, in, a, in, a, in a tensionality. Or maybe, you know, the fact that you're eating it and you enjoy it, that presupposes uh, kavana. So meaning, you didn't have to make Rava's inference. It's not in inevitable. But that's not the assumption of either Rava, uh, clearly, or even the Sugya, because the Sugya now responds to Rava. Pishpita, that's obvious. If you're Yotze, your mitzvah, and you're forced to eat matzah, of course, if you blew the shofar to make music, you would fulfill the mitzvah as well. Why did Rava even have to say that? Asked the Gemara. Hainuhach. These are the same thing. Rava's inference was unnecessary because it's completely obvious. So answers the Gemara, Mahu Tema, what might you have thought? You might have thought in the case of matzah, the Torah says to eat matzah. That's what the mitzvah is. And if you eat matzah, you have done the mitzvah. All you have to do is eat it to, uh, to satisfy the chiv. Aval hacha, here in the case of shofar, zichron tru'akiti. Sorry. It says in the Torah, in our, uh, when it uh, talks about the obligation to blow the shofar, it calls it a zichron tru'akiti. It's a remembrance of the blowing. So the Torah has some sort of mind requirement associated with the blowing of the shofar. So maybe you would have thought eating matzah is not the same as blowing shofar because a shofar requires a mind element. And if you're just blowing the shofar to make music, you're not 
even you're not uh, doing a zichron a true eye. Your mind is not involved with the mitzvah enough. So kamash malan. So that's why Rabbah had to uh, teach us this. So the Bavli thinks Rabbah's inference is obvious and inevitable. If you think one is forced to eat matzah, is yotz the mitzvah of uh, Pesach, of course you'd think even an unrelated mitzvah like uh, Shofar does not require an attention to perform it either. However, as I said, you don't have to see these two as related. You don't have to make Rava's inference. You can hold mitzvot uh, generally require kavana. You do have to intend uh, to perform mitzvot and still say that if you're forced to eat matzah, you can fulfill your requirement. You could say that matzah is exceptional because it involves eating, which by its very nature, Either presupposes a kind of intentionality, or the fact that you get, uh, you know, uh, satiated from it. Your uh, your needs are filled, and that uh, also presupposes a kind of intentionality. Now I say that because that is the way that it seems most of the medieval rishon and most of the medieval commentators of the uh, Talmud and rabbis understood the halacha. So if we look at how Maimonides, the Rambam, ruled, we see that he breaks up the rules. When it comes to Shofar and Shema, he rules like the Mishnah. So in source number six, if you are you know, involved with blowing the Shofar, not to do your mitzvah of it, but just to uh, teach or to learn, you do not fulfill your obligation to hear the shofar, to blow the shofar. And similarly, one who, one who hears from such a person who's just uh, practicing blowing the shofar and not uh, doing it for the mitzvah does not fulfill their chiyav, uh, their obligation of shofar blowing on Rosh Hashanah. And similarly, in source number seven, in regard to Shema and Hilchot Kriyat the Rambam rules HaKore at Shema, Velo Kibayin Libo Bepepasuk Rishon, Tru Shema Yisrael, Lo Yatsai Yedei If someone's reading Shema and they do not have Kavana, meaning they don't attend during the first verse of Shema, you say Shema Yisrael, they do not fulfill their obligation of Shema. So it is clear in these areas, the Rambam rules that the Kavana is required. And yet he holds by Hilchot HaMetu Matzah, Achal Matzah, this is source number eight, Achal Matzah, below Kavana, if someone eats matzah without any kavanah, without in attention, i.e. to do the mitzvah, like they're being forced by a non-Jew, or they're being forced by a thieves to eat the matzah. You fulfill your chiv, you fulfill your obligation. So we see for the Rambam, he doesn't, make the same inference that Rava makes. You can hold overall that mitzvot require kavanah and still say that if you're forced to eat matzah, you fulfill your chiyah, you fulfill your 
Hugation. Um, and this is the way that most of the Rishonim go as well. And they seem to, 98% you know, of the Rishonim go with the uh, general rule that mitzvot do require intentionality to, to fulfill them. So when the Rif, the great Rav Yitzchak el who uh, lives in the early 1000s, he basically lives the whole 11th century, dies in 1103, and he, rewrote basically the uh, Bavli, but he only in, uh, included the elements of the uh, Bavli that he uh, poskins like. So you know how he holds by what he writes, and you know what he does not hold by, by what he does not write. If he leaves something out, it shows that he does not hold of it. So when he uh, rewrites our Sugyam Rosh Hashanah, he writes, If the one who hears the shofar has uh, in attention, but the one who uh, blows the shofar does not have in uh, attention, or vice versa, or either of them have any kavana, lo yatsa, you do not fulfill your obligation of shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Both the person blowing the shofar and the person who hears the shofar both have to have a kavana to fulfill their obligation of, of a shofar. He then skips to the very last part of the sugya, which I'll just go back to here. The end of the sugya writes, Amar le Rebbe's Hera le Shamaye. So Rebbe Hera. An earlier sage, he and he's from the land of Israel, he says to his uh, servant, vitakali, have kavana and blow the shofar for me. Alma kasavar mashmir by kavana. So consequently, it looks at Rabbi Zera holds that the one blowing the shofar has to have uh, kavana. So that's how the sugya ends. That's how this sugya uh, with Rava ends. And the riff, when he rewrites it, so he writes the beginning of the Shagya, and then he jumps to the Marle Rebizera Le Shamaye, it's Kaven Betakale, Avakisam, Mashmenai Bai Kavana. So he just skipped right to the end, and he's, that uh, Rebbe Zera ordered his attendant uh, to have Kavane when he blew the shofar. And um, a later commentary on the riff. The Ran, Reb Nisin of Corona, who lived in the uh, 14th century, writes, So the, the Rif, he writes this anecdote involving Rebbe Zera, Veshafcha Lede Rava, and he leaves out Rava. To ask Alashamata, Vamar Dodse Loi of Lobai Kavana. Um, and he leaves out Rava, who holds that you don't require any uh, kavana to do mitzvot. And he basically goes through the sugya, then he, uh, can, then he can, uh, concludes, mashma desfirele l'rav de rebizera paliga adarava. So it seems that the riff, he holds like rebizera, 
who argues with Rava. So says the Ran that the Rif sees there's a dispute here between Rava, who holds mitzvot do not require any havana on the one hand, versus the other view, which is uh, epitomized by Rabbi Zera, who does require a kavana. And he says that the Rif goes with the view of Rabbi Zera. And we saw that's how the Rambam ruled as well. And when we uh, jump, you know, up 200 years to Rabbi Yosef uh, Cairo and the Shulchan Aruch in the 1600s, he goes in the same direction as the Rif, as the Rambam, and the Ran who came before him. And he writes, again, when it comes to other mitzvot, he requires kavanah. Rinse verse number 11. One who's involved in blowing the shofar just to uh, teach, to learn. Do not fulfill your obligation. And also one who hears, one who hears the shofar being blown by one who's just involved. Also does not fulfill their chiv of the shofar and the taz, a commentary on the on the shochanarach explains de kaimelan keman de amar mitzvot zricho kavana. Because explains the taz of source number twelve, the shochanarach holds like the opinion which says that mitzvot require kavana. Mitzvot require a specific intention to fulfill them. And uh, similarly, when the Shulchanach writes the laws of uh, Shulchanach in verse number 13, If you're reading the Pasuk of Shema, and if you don't have any Kavana in the first uh, verse of Shema Yisrael, you do not fulfill your chiv, uh, and here also the Magin Avram writes, because you know you require a kavana in that first uh, verse, because mitzvot srichot kavana. However, when it comes to achilat matzah, can assuming matzah and chag ha-pesach, the shachanarach rules the opposite, but in the same way we saw the Rambam did as well. So verse number 15, the shachanarach rules, achal matzah, Below kavana, if someone consumes matzah without any kavana, without any attention to perform the mitzvah, kigon shensu akum for example, non-Jews or feeds force you to eat the matzah, you fulfill your obligation to eat matzah. Why kivan shalayla pesach matzah? As long as you know it's Chag HaPesach, and you know that there's a Chiyav to eat it. So you have to have some minimal uh, Kavana adds in the Shulchan Aruch here. But if you thought it was a weekday, if you didn't know it was Chag HaPesach, or you weren't even aware you were eating Matzah at all, you would not fulfill the, the Chiyav. And that is found in... Uh, in the Kemar there as well. So um, we see that like the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch on the one hand holds that a slew of other mitzvot do require uh, Kavana and explain the Taz because the Shulchan Aruch rules mitzvot require uh, Kavana. On the other hand, when it comes to Matzah, he does not require you to have a general a Kavana to perform the mitzvah. And here the Magin Avram explains what we said before for the Rambam. And that is in source number 16. 
even though mitzvot do require kavana in general, as we saw above. But when it comes to an act like eating, that is inherently different. Exactly what we said, because you are eating, and when you eat, you get uh, benefit, you get enjoyment. And for this reason, since the fact that you're eating, when you eat, you inherently enjoy the act of eating and you get a pleasure from the act of eating. And therefore, even if you do not want to do the mitzvah, if you know you're eating matzah, you fulfill the mitzvah. So not, as Rabbi wants to say, because uh, there's some uh, general uh, principle that mitzvah ain't srichot kavana. Rather, mitzvah do require kavana. Uh, That's what the halacha says. But matzah is its own unique exception because eating by its very nature entails kavana. Uh, so that is really the view we saw of most of the Rishonim going into the Halacha as uh, codified by Rabbi Yosef uh, Cairo in the Shulchan Harach. However, that's not the only view. And the reason that's not the only view is because when you actually look in the Surya itself, as well as other Sugyot in the Abavli, which refer to Mitzvot and uh, Kavanah, you really see that the view of Rava is the one that becomes predominant in the Babli. So even in this very sugi, if we go back to source number four, to the sugi in Rosh Hashanah, after Rava makes his Hiddish, uh, after he in, uh, makes his innovative inference that when he blows the shofar to make music that fills their mitzvah. And this is extremely innovative because it goes against an explicit mishnah. And you hear the shofar blown. If you have kavana, you're yotze. If you, if you do not, you're not yotze. And I said, even if, even if one hears it, one, even if two people hear it, one has kavana and one does not. And one therefore fills mitzvah and one does not. So you see, the Mishnah really thinks uh, kavana is a very uh, essential element of the mitzvah of a shofar. And yet Rava goes against that, um, which that might be one reason which motivated the Rishonim to go against Rava because he's going against a Mishnah. But the Babli itself uh, follows in the vein of Rava, and it infers from there, Alma Kisava Rava, so in the fourth line of the Kikimara in source number four, consequently, Rava holds mitzvot in trichot kavana. That's mitzvot in the general, do not require kavana. The having established this general uh, principle, the Abavli now uh, challenges Rava, uh, basically based on these mission, mission ayat. So it says, wait, but it says here in source number one, it says straight out, if you're reading the Torah and the time of Shema, 
arise. If you have kavana, you fulfill the mitzvah. If not, you do not have. If not, you do not fulfill the mitzvah. Ask the Gemara, my love, doesn't this mean you had kavana to do the mitzvah? So answers the above, we know. Kavana you need in the Mishnah is not Kavana the Mitzvah. It's only Kavana to read. To read, but that's what you were uh, doing. So rather it says you're reading to correct for Miss uh, Dave. So you weren't even reading. So you were doing a very minimal act of just, you know, uh, uh, crossing the T's and uh, dotting the I's. That is not adequate. But if you're reading, you just have to have Kavana to read, and that would be adequate says the Bavli in, in defense of Rabba. So then it brings the next Mishnah, Mishnah number uh, two on our uh, on our If you're walking past the shul, or you live near shul, as we said before, you're walking past the shul and you hear the shofar, you hear the Megillat as they're being read on Rosh Hashanah or Purim. Uh, if you have Kavani, you fulfill the mitzvah. If not, you do not fulfill the mitzvah. And again, isn't this Kavana? Mommy, I did love the Can I sit on the computer? Sorry. Um, if you have Kavana, you fulfill the mitzvah. Doesn't this imply Kavana to do the mitzvah? And again, responds the Gemara. No, lo, it's rather just lish moa. You just have to have kavana to hear. Lish moa, bahash you uh, do hear it. What do you mean you have to have uh, kavana to hear? That's precisely what you were uh, doing in the Mishnah that it said wasn't enough. So answers the Gemara, savor chamor ba'amahu. So the first part of the Mishnah is where you think you're hearing the sound of a uh, donkey uh, praying. The sound of the chauffeur, too, sounds like a hee-haw of a donkey. So if that's what you thought, that would not be uh, good. So you have to have a minimal amount of uh, kavana to know what you're hearing is a chauffeur. Um, and that's, by the way, why we saw the shachan arach go in that way as well. You have to at least know that you're in, uh, engaged in the act of the mitzvah, where you, in the case of matzah, where you're not obligated to have any uh, kavana. Um, so we see it brings our mission, mission, which seem to very uh, clearly go against Rava, and these mishnayot are reinterpreted. Uh, to accord with Rava's uh, view. Um, so it looks like the sugya sides with Rava. The, the fact that each Mishnah is read to accord with Rava, that really mitzvot do not require in attention. Uh, and where it says in Kivain Libo, that refers to a very minimal um, a minimal in attention uh, to just be aware of the fact that you're performing an act which constitutes a mitzvah, but not that you have to have any uh, deep uh, kavanah to do a mitzvah. Then at the end of the sug, as we saw, 
appears at anecdotes of Rebbe uh, Zera, which on one hand seems to undermine what Rebbe said, but it's also in a point to remember that Rebbe Zera lived before Rebbe. And so Rebbe comes after him, and Rebbe's uh, giving his ruling after Rebbe Zera gave his, which accords with the Mishnah. And I'll repeat that Rebbe Zera lives in Eretz Israel, and so his view accords with the view which seems to have been a prevalent the land of Israel seen in the Mishnah. So our uh, sugya goes out of its way to reconcile Rava's very radical position with Mishnayot. But we see that this uh, view that mitzvah and kavana underlies other sugyot as well. And really even unrelated as sugyot. So if you go to source number 19, and we'll get to the ones that we skipped, um, completely unrelated halacha. Hamotse tefillin. Let's say you're out in a public area on Shabbat. You're not allowed to uh, carry. It's the Rishit HaRabim. And you found there a pair of tefillin. What do you do? You want to uh, save them. Tefillin costs a lot of money, but you're not allowed to uh, carry. And there are two uh, pairs of tefillin. So how do you uh, carry two pairs on a Shabbos from a Rishut HaRabim to Rishut HaYachid, something that you're not allowed to do? So the, the first opinion of the Mishnah says, machnisim zugzug. You take them pair by pair, meaning a head and arm, head and arm. You can only take one pair at a time, meaning you would wear them. Revan Gamli Omer Shnaim Shnaim. He says, no, you can wear two uh, pairs at a time. So a whole uh, bunch of ways to understand these uh, uh, differing uh, views um, appear in the sugya here in the uh, Babli. But the last three make it all about whether mitzvot entrichot uh, kavana. So it says maybe hacha on source number uh, 20, hacha b'mitzvot entrichot kavana kimen apalgi. Maybe these two uh, opinions of the Mishnah. One who says you can only bring one pair of tefillin at a time, one says you can bring two pair. Maybe their machlokit is really about whether mitzvot require kavana. So one holds mitzvot do require uh, kavana, and that's why you can wear two pairs at one uh, time, because you're not you know, wearing an extra pair of tefillin because you don't have a kavana. And Umar Savar, and one holds low by kavana, one holds they don't require a kavana. But then the, okay, now the uh, details of how that works out really aren't significant for us right now. Then the camera says, no. Dechule alma low by kavana, no. Everyone agrees that to fulfill a mitzvah does not require kavanah. Rather, their dispute between these two opinions of the Mishnah is, do you need kavanah to uh, violate a iser, to violate the prohibition against adding on to mitzvah? But everyone agrees that mitzvah don't require kavanah. Um, so we see in this uh, sugi, at first it, pre it presents it as a 
do mitzvah require a kavanah or not? And then by the end of the Shogit, it sees it as unanimous that everyone agrees mitzvah do not require a kavanah the way Rava holds. And we'll see, and as we'll now see, that while most of the Rishonim ruled against Rava, one Rishon who um, is very uh, prone to very Peshat readings of the Shukyot said that we do hold like Rava because that's the implication of the uh, Bavli. So this is found in the parish of the Bavli, source number 718, or um, that's authored by Rev Zerachia Halevi. He too lived in the same place as the Ram. Corona of Spain, a lot of uh, people live there. And he lives not long after the Rif. Uh, what, he lives in the early 1100s. And um, he kind of gets a bad rap because the Ram uh, Ban wrote a parish against him, which he uh, uh, titled the Milchamot Hashem, the Wars of uh, uh, God, where he defends the Rif against the attacks uh, of the Baal Ma'or. But, um, you know, I kind of see, and I'm sure other people do as well, you know, the Ramban, and it someone has to be worth it for the Ramban to uh, attack them. I mean, it shows the uh, greatness of the Baal Ma'or that the Ramban uh, found it worth his uh, while to, uh, to defend the Rif uh, from him. And I kind of see this, the Baal Ma'or and the Ramban's relationship with him in the same way of the Ramban's relationship with Ibn Ezra and his defense of Rashi against the uh, attacks of Ibn Ezra. And again, Ibn Ezra is also a Spanish Pishat uh, Pirish in the same way that the Baal Me'or is. And uh, you know, both uh, cases, the Ramban, I think, has some kind of what he deems about the Ibn Ezra can uh, heal the love and open hate. You know, open rebuke and can uh, heal love is the way he uh, terms it. I see that with the Baal Ma'or as well. So we'll, and we'll see how the Ramban defends the writ. But here, the Baal Ma'or is very uh, simple and he says, Lepum sugya deshamata, according lefi, according to the sugya here, mitzhavra kerava. The Peshat of the Shugya in Rosh Hashanah goes according to Rava, De Amar, Latzeit Lobai Kavana, who holds that in order to fulfill a mitzvah, you do not require a Kavana. That is the implication of the Shugya here, says the Baal Naor. And then he says, and I'll skip it, and then he, and he quotes the riff, and he says, and the riff doesn't agree with this, because the riff only brings Rebbe uh, Zera. Um, and, he, and he says, the, the fact that the riff only brings Rebbe uh, Zera shows that he doesn't hold like Rebbe, because, where I underline, the Rebbe Zera palig al Rebbe, because Rebbe uh, Zera argues with Rebbe. Um, so, says uh, the Baal, so we just don't hold like Rabbi Zera. We hold like Rabbi. 
And he says uh, elsewhere, as we'll see, this is just the implication of the uh, Babli, of the various Shagyot uh, in the uh, Babli, is like Rabba, that uh, Kavana, I mean, that, that uh, Kavana is not required when performing a mitzvah. And says, Reb, says the Raza, says Reb Hirachia Halevi, and that is the law, that's what we hold. To do mitzvah does not require uh, Kavana. Um, so you see why the Rambam would uh, attack him on this, because everyone else goes against this. None of the Rishonim agree with um, with the Rev Hirachia Halevi, but the Rambam is attuned to Peshat as well. So the Rambam has to respond to the Rev Hirachia Halevi's very good uh, point that the Sugya goes like Rabba. So what are we going to uh, 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 do with that? So the Ramban responds and gives a, a way to reckon a sile, both the Peshat of the Shogya with the uh, bulk of the Rishonim of how we Paschim uh, Halacha. And he writes, so first he uh, quotes the Baal Ma'or, which I left out. In source number 18, the Ramban, this is Nachmanides, and he also lived in uh, Giromit. At around, you know, uh, almost, uh, you know, he lived at the end, the beginning, of, end of the 12th uh, century. So he writes, Amar HaKotid, Derava Lo Mechra Dehu Peruke. Says, okay, you're not uh, getting rubber weight. When Rava said that, meaning when Rava said, go back to source number two, Zotomera Tatokela Shir Yatsa. That wasn't his own uh, opinion. Rather, get that here. He's not giving his uh, opinion. He's just uh, telling you what Avua Deshmua would have said. And he says this more at the end. Um, Rav is not uh, saying that he holds like this. He's saying this is to say that one could infer that. But but Rav doesn't actually hold like that. So again, going back to source number two, Rav just says, Based on the ruling of the father of Shemuel, this means to say that if you blow to make the use, if you fulfill your mitzvah. But says a Rambam, but Rambam's not saying that's my opinion. He's just uh, telling you what Shemuel would have said. But says a Rambam, it's not actually Rambam's opinion. And so this whole sugi here is just theoretical. It's just if you were to hold that, this is how you would read these Mishnayot. But again, we don't hold like that. So that's how the Ram Aban reads the Peshat. And he's able to, to say that because Rava doesn't say, Ani, Homer, you know, says me from this. Rather, he's saying, Zot Omeret, the, uh, you know, uh, third uh, person, one could say from this, you know, this means to say, So that's how the Ram Aban reads it. 
But um, looking through the various Hagyot, uh, it seems that Rev. Hirach Yahalevi's reading is more in line with the overall, you know, Babli, all the Hagyot in which the idea of mitzvot appears, it seems to go with this inference made from Rabbah and the later inference that was made that Rabbah was not limited to the case of Blohu Shofar, but applied to all mitzvot. And this then, because Rabbah's rule is the working assumption of the uh, Babli, another Mishnah comes into conflict with that, which then the Babli has to work with. Um, and that's now what I want to focus on the remainder of our uh, time. Another Mishnah from Masechet Pesachim about what we do during the, the Seder. Um, now this is it. Most of Masechet Pesachim uh, deals with searching for chametz, what was done in the Beit HaMekah uh, uh, Dash, and uh, meaning how they acted when there was a carbon uh, uh, Pesach. And the last uh, parakid uh, deals with Leil HaSeder, you know, actually what we do. So in the third mission, the tenth uh, parak is a very, uh, it's a difficult, uh, a difficultly worded Mishnah. Um, a lot of different opinions as to what it means, so I'll just read it and uh, tell you what it means so we can get to the sugya. Heviu lefanav, so they bring it before him, and uh, the mission doesn't say what is brought before him. So it says they bring before him. Some say either the uh, table they used to each have their own little private uh, uh, table, or they bring out the vegetables. Um, and then it says mitavel. Uh, so they uh, bring so, so they bring out either the table or the vegetables, and then mitavel. He uh, dips. Um, what is he uh, dips also isn't uh, clear. Toso says they dip the uh, vegetables in water or some sort of uh, uh, dressing. The Ron says refers to chayrosa. So either way, they bring out some vegetables, they uh, dip, and then it says bechazeret, and he eats it with lettuce. So he's having some sort of prolonged pre-vegetable uh, 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 course where he uh, dips. Until he reaches the course, which is parparatapat, means second uh, dairy to the uh, bread. So meaning, let me make this clear, because again, this is really hardly, it's a very hard-worded Mishnah. He eats lettuce at the beginning of the meal, until he reaches the lettuce that we will eat with the matzah, then he lefanav matzah And then they bring the matzah, the unleavened bread, the chazeret, the lettuce, and the charoset. And charoset, you know what that means, you know, the charoset. Rashi explains, you know, it's nuts and uh, Sorry, Atoso says it's nuts and uh, fruits, all the things we have. Okay. And it says, and then it's a machloket, whether it's a mitzvah to have haroset or not. So that's the mission. So it's very uh, difficult to understand. Mission, as I said, there's a lot of 
medieval Vishonim, which try to work out the words on it. What's uh, clear is that lettuce is served two uh, times during the meal. The first uh, lettuce uh, course, the first uh, vegetable course they would have where they had lettuce. Then they'd bring lettuce out again, which they had with the matzah and the harosa. And what's that? We all uh, do that during the meal. When you have the lettuce with the matzah and the harosa, that's a mitzvah of haror. Um, you know, we make our uh, sandwich, so there it's there in the Mishnah. So Amar Reish Lakish. So Reish Lakish, who's a second uh, generation Eretz Yisrael, Ora uh, says, Zotomeret mitzvot tzricho kavana. Same language we saw in our Mishnah with, in our, in our Suya with Rava. This Mishnah is saying that mitzvot do require kavana. Why? How do we see that? So the Gemara explains, since it was not the time of Mar that you ate it, meaning this first lettuce that you ate was not the time of the mitzvah of Aror. So you ate it with a Parei Puri So you ate it with a regular bracha of Parei Puri And since it was during the non mitzvah time, Dilma lo So maybe when you ate it here in the vegetable course, and by the way, people used to uh, do that. After they used to eat these, uh, they would have some team that they would dip with. So since you had the lettuce earlier when it wasn't time of the mitzvah, maybe you didn't have kavana to do the mitzvah. Hilchach, therefore, says the Gemara, therefore, since you might not have kavana the first time here, you have to have the mower again here when we bring out the matzah and the haroset, which is a time of the mitzvah. So says Reish Lakish, La, La, uh, La this uh, proves that this Mishnah holds mitzvah do require kavanah. I'll just say, I'll regal achat here. Reish Lakish appears in the corresponding Yerushalmi and uh, doesn't say these words. It actually says the opposite. So it, Probably not Rachel Lakish who said this, and if one meets a different time, I could talk more about the development of this Hagia. Uh, but the Gemara begins with the uh, question that this Mishnah seems to imply that Misfod do require Kavana. Therefore, when you wouldn't have led us the first uh, time, you might not have had Kavana because it was during the vegetable uh, course. So make sure to have lettuce again throwing the matzah to make sure you have proper kavana. But then the, and okay, but now the Kamara says, wait a minute, me, I, how do you know this? How can you just assume this Mishnah means mitzvot require kavana? Maybe mitzvot really do not require inattention and as to that which you ask, why then do we have to have two servings of lettuce? Why? The reason we need two servings of lettuce is not because mitzvot require kavana. We know mitzvot do not require kavana. Rather, what's the reason we need two servings of lettuce? To have a heker, to do something uh, uh, different, to arouse the curiosity of the children uh, present at the meal. As we know, we do lots of things like that. And there's a lot of, and we have 
to Hepta, uh, which uh, talk about all the things we do during the meal to engage the children so that they ask uh, questions. Maybe this is just an example of that. So the two servings of lettuce does not uh, prove Mr. Require Kavana. It might just be to arouse the uh, children. So then, but then the Gemara says back, but if you'll say, if it was just about arousing the children's uh, curiosity, why then, why didn't it teach other vegetables then? Why was specifically the first vegetable you had that had to be eaten two uh, times lettuce? Lettuce is what we use for aror. The fact that it has specifically lettuce, that would seem to show because you need a kavana, because maybe you didn't have kavana the first time, but then the Kimara says, no. If it had other vegetables and not lettuce the first time, maybe you would have thought only other vegetables required to uh, dipping, but maybe you would have thought lettuce does not require to uh, 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 dipping. So again, it says lettuce, and you have to do it two uh, times. So you know that even lettuce has to be done two uh, times. So again, that'll be a hecker Latino goat. Not because Mr. require Kavana, so, but the reason you have lettuce two times at the meal is to, um, and, it, and it, it doesn't have to be lettuce. It could be any vegetable, which is what we do. Any vegetable can be had two uh, times at the meal, but it's specifically taught lettuce to show, even if it is lettuce you have the first time, you have to have it again. And again, it's not for kavana reasons, it's for edu uh, educational reasons, to arouse the curiosity of uh, children. Um, and then the Gemara, it brings another uh, Mishnah to again try to go back and forth. And again, it says, but again, me, my, but again, how do you know mitzvah don't require kavana? Maybe, maybe, maybe Rabbi Yossi does say uh, mitzvah require kavana. And again, hi Dubai trade Tibule, and why do you have to have two uh, 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 dippings? Kechidavi, Hikera Latino, quote. Um, be, uh, again, maybe it's not because we need Kavana, the reason we need two uh, uh, dippings, but maybe it's still be a hacker for the uh, children. And then the Gemara can include, but well, MK, my mitzvah. If it's just about a hacker for the uh, uh, children, why then does it, why then does it call it a mitzvah? If it's just say hecker, you wouldn't have thought it would use the word mitzvah. And that's how the sugya ends here. So if that wasn't um, uh, clear, the sugya has a back and forth as to whether the Mishnah in Pesachim requiring two servings of lettuce presupposes a need for kavana, and that's why two servings of lettuce is necessary, because maybe the first time you had lettuce, you didn't have kavana to do the mitzvah. Or it's no, the reason you have two servings of lettuce is not because kavana, it's to serve as a hekir, is to have something uh, stand out to arouse the, the curiosity of the children uh, uh, present. And again, in this sugya, uh, yeah, 
the Baal Me'or goes with the view that uh, we see from here. Mitzvah do not require Kavana. Um, and the Melchamot Hashem says, no, we, everyone holds that Mitzvah Tzricho Kavana. Um, and he says, and I'll write more in uh, Rosh Hashanah. And the Beit Yosef here, Rabbi Yosef uh, uh, Cairo, brings all the opinions of the Rishonim on the matter. And he brings Rev Zerach Elev the Baal Hama'or. He brings the Ramban and everyone. And he writes in the end, Ul'inyan halacha, kevan zaharif v'harama v'harash. Maskim de mitzvot rechot kavana, hachinak yatina. Even though there is a view of the Baal Hama'or. And even though it does read well in the Sugyot. Ul'inyan halacha, the way we hold is because the Rif, the Ramam, and the Rush, we uh, didn't see. He's the father of the uh, Torah, with the Beit Yosef is a common Terry on. Since they all hold, the mitzvah do require kavana. That's how we hold, that's the rule. We can make an exception for something like matzah, um, even maybe maro as well. But note, this Shogya uh, here in Pesachim didn't have the eating as an exception. So it's, I could have I brought that there, but it uh, didn't. And that would show, because Rava holds, mitzvot do not require kavana in uh, general. And that's a view which the later rabbis of the Abavli saw as well and then had to kind of read into things which kind of conflicted with it. Um, but later on, the way that Allah was ultimately formulated was that the view that, of course, mitzvah has have Kavana. Uh, if I just take one moment, just to understand these two uh, views. I think it's easy to understand why the Rishomim would want you to have Kavana to do a mitzvah. I mean, you're thinking that, you know, one of the very early uh, uh, critiques that uh, early Christianity had on, uh, on uh, Judaism was that it's so mechanical, it's so uh, technical, there's no heart in it. To just do actions by rote is meaningless, and should we uh, acquire a deeper religious and in eternal in experience as well? And that might be, you know, what's uh, driving most of the Rishonim uh, to hold that. How can you have a religious act that isn't uh, accompanied by an eternal mental devotion? On the other hand, I can, so that seems like the intuitive uh, approach to misvote. Um, and the one which says you, you can just do an act by rote, as long as you're aware that you're doing an act, what meaning is there in that? And that seems like a weird approach to have. Um, while it uh, seems weird, actually, it's a very kind of modern uh, 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 approach that, contemporary ritual uh, uh, theorists are increasingly uh, seeing as the inherent uh, value of religious acts. That a religious act could have meaning just by a virtue of the fact that it's an act that a group of uh, people uh, do at a set uh, time for a set uh, thing. And it and has meaning in the communal uh, sense. And you know, all the more so I you know, see that now that we're all here 
you know, doing the same act that I can light uh, candles one day. The fact that I light uh, uh, candles on a Friday when it begins to get uh, dark, and I do that and every other person uh, does that as well, that has meaning. Even if I'm not uh, thinking at that moment, I'm waiting to bring in the uh, Shabbos. The fact that the whole community uh, does that in the same way, at the same uh, time, that has meaning to it. And it doesn't have to be less than a person who's you know, uh, thinking about their uh, personal relationship with uh, God at the moment either. So while Rabbi Mason counter and intuitive, it does bring a new element to rituals and the taboo that we do. That it can have meaning, even divorced from our own personal thoughts about it, but it has meaning as a bringing a community together. And, you know, the fact that mitzvot are what matter is why we still do perform these same mitzvot you know, all these uh, thousands of years later, because we do place emphasis on the act. So uh, certainly it is something to aspire to, to every time you do a mitzvah to think about the religious experience of it. But I, I don't think it's any less meaningful to also feel just the communal boundary to it. And that's why you have to at least be aware that you're doing the act, which constitutes a ritual. So if you think it's a donkey praying, you don't do the mitzvah, as long as you know the, uh, it's the chauffeur. And you know it's Rosh Hashanah. That can be adequate, says Rabbi, because the act itself has religious meaning. Um, and so... We can all take this into our observance of uh, Pesach. Certainly, uh, Pesach, eating matzah is itself inherently a kavana-filled act. Um, but, you know, I wish for us, we even if we're alone during the Seder, we can feel the communal meaning of doing an act that I know people around the world are uh, doing in the same way in their same uh, time, you know, obviously time uh, difference uh, accounted for, but uh, try to draw meaning from that and feel to, uh, together, even when we uh, can't be together in it. But um, the act of, the act itself uh, does uh, transcend our own personal experience of it. And I think that message of Rava be very, very relevant today, and especially this year's uh, observance of uh, Pesach. So thank you so much. We got through all these. I'm impressed. We did it. And if anyone has uh, questions, as always, you're welcome to email me. People took me up on that last week, so I'm glad that people know I meant it. And you're welcome to write to me again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll stop the share.